just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Welcome to Holy Smoke, The Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. What can a global cryptocurrency scam tell us about the future of religion? Strange question to ask, but the answer is quite a lot. I'm joined by Jamie Bartlett, one of the world's leading experts on the dark web, radical politics and technology, whose gripping podcast series, The Missing Crypto Queen, is currently being broadcast by the BBC. It tells the story of a shady Bulgarian tech entrepreneur, Dr. Ruja Ignatova, who vanished just as her dodgy cryptocurrency OneCoin was raking in billions for investors, or true believers, all over the world. Despite her disappearance, it still has footholds in African villages, the Chinese business community, Scottish housing estates, and among British Muslims, it claims to be Sharia compliant. Not only does her operation resemble a religious cult, it also gives us a glimpse of how technology and belief are forming ever stranger patterns, taking their lead from the utopians of Silicon Valley. Jamie, can you give us a quick introduction to this bizarre drama, which has been playing out under the media radar until now? So the, the, brief, the brief version is that in 2014, this woman, Dr. Ruja Ignatova, a Bulgarian-German businesswoman, comes out of nowhere and invents a brand new cryptocurrency, which she said is going to be like the next Bitcoin. It's going to be bigger than Bitcoin. You might have missed out on that one, but this is your new chance. It spreads around the world very, very quickly, and we'll get to why it spread so fast. But by late 2017, over 4 billion euros had been invested in this cryptocurrency, at which point... This woman vanishes into thin air and has not been seen since. And yet the scam continues. People still believe in this. It's called OneCoin. No one knows where she is. And our podcast is to try to find her, but also understand how she managed to pull this off. Well, what struck me very forcibly in these fascinating podcasts was the quasi-religious enthusiasm that she built up around OneCoin. Mm. The people who bought it the people who persuaded their friends to invest in it, Mm. were infused with evangelical zeal Mm. and indeed have responded to the disasters and the criticisms like true believers who don't want their faith to be interfered with. Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting bits about it. I don't know, have you ever spent much time with Bitcoin people? They have a bit of that about them, you know, they absolutely, because this to them is, um, this is a financial revolution, this is changing the world, this is financial freedom for people, and they've got this kind of zeal. This is not just about some technical style of programming or anything, it's, it's about some great grand change that's going to overturn our understanding of money and relationships and everything. And so that is already in the sort of cryptocurrency world. And then she comes along and they really do position her, this woman, as this... This Dr. Ruja, this genius, she's always dressed amazingly. She looks at incredible music that comes on whenever she hits the stage. And I think there's something about the way it's spread that really helps explain that sort of quasi-religious belief in it. Because 
it spreads through networks of people. People, friends are kind of recruiting friends into it. Oh, I've heard about this amazing cryptocurrency. Will you, you know, I can sign you up and we'll make money and we're going to change our lives. And I interviewed Eileen Barker, who I think you... Who, was, who was my supervisor, yeah. Yeah, Inform. That's the was that study of new religious movements. That's right, it? yeah. Yeah, and, and she, took a little, she took a look into uh, a one coin and one of the things she said, which was and blew me away really, just her understanding of it all, because she's not a cryptocurrency expert, but she had this amazing insight. And she said, people have to carry on believing because this woman is in charge of their future. She's got their money. You almost can't stop believing because if you stop believing, you've invested your intelligence, you've told your friends about it, your reputation. You have to carry on believing no matter what the evidence. And I hadn't really thought about that. And it was interesting basically to speak to someone who's an expert in new religious movements who helped me to understand this cryptocurrency. Well, actually, there's a dynamic that was identified years ago by Festinger in this famous book, When Prophecy Fails, which was a movement built around... A, a crazy woman who was predicting the end of the world. And when it didn't happen, some of the believers doubled down on their belief. They actually, their response was actually to believe more strongly in the face of disconfirmation. Why is that? Why is that? It's cognitive dissonance. It's a way of coping with the unthinkable. If you believe more strongly, then somehow you become less vulnerable to the outside world which I was very interested to see, is being mm. painted as the enemy. Mm. By, I mean, there are so many respects in which mm. one coin not only resembles, but in some respects is a religious movement. It talks mm. about an enemy. It talks about almost demonic opponents. Mm. And it expects, effectively, spiritual devotion mm. to this prospect of a big change. A big change, which is yeah. almost like an apocalyptic moment yeah. when the world will be transformed and people will be liberated by the dawn of knowledge. It's like the new age apocalypses that were fashionable in the 1980s. Yeah. And it's, I find it interesting oh, that so you, interesting. Yeah, you, because you I, encounter these yes, quite yes. a lot in the tech world. Think about yes. Peter Thiel. Yes. Think about the utopian fantasies which yeah. are constantly singular, floating around. Singularitarians who think that there's this moment in 2049 when computers become capable of creating smarter versions of themselves and exponential growth and we're left behind. It's really interesting to hear you talk about that because there's something in OneCoin that the promise has been that one day an exchange will open. So the promise was always that you would one day you could take all these OneCoin that you've got that are in your account, in your account, and you'll be able to sell them for real money, for dollars, for euros, for pounds. And that's the moment at which you're essentially cashing in and the price of a one coin is €29.95 and people have all of these one coin in their account. And so they're just waiting for the moment when the exchange will open and the money will come to them. And there's been repeated promises and failures of that exchange opening. The leasers would say, well, it's going to open next month and then next month it doesn't open. And they say, well, there's been a problem. It's going to open in April and then that doesn't happen. And then they say, well, it's October now. And for a long time I was thinking, why do they keep... It doesn't seem to affect their belief. Every time it doesn't open, they don't stop believing. I was reminded of the prosperity gospel, which mm. is a version of evangelical Christianity in which if you believe, then apparently biblical promises that you will become rich will automatically be fulfilled. Mm. So Creflo Dollar, one of the practitioners of the prosperity gospel, has his followers say, money cometh to me. But what I thought was interesting and actually very sad was to hear 
an African guy mm. in your documentary talk with such passionate faith mm. and longing for the prosperity that was coming to him and his village and to hear about meetings of OneCoin believers happening in Uganda yeah. and the parallels with the prosperity gospel are really quite scandalous. The people I've interviewed that still believe, I, I sometimes wonder whether they, they know that something's up, but it's more spiritually satisfying to carry on believing that that money's about to come to you. You almost feel richer thinking, well, I've got this on paper. I'm a wealthy man. I'm going to walk around. I have hundreds of thousands of dollars. I can't cash it in yet, but in my mind, I'm already a wealthy person. And, you know, the strange thing about it is that the more you believe, the more you can actually keep the party going with these kinds of schemes as well. If everyone keeps believing in it and everyone keeps buying it and everyone keeps selling it to each other because a lot of it is done through sort of selling between people, it does actually continue and you can actually make some money. Some people have made money from one coin and the longer it goes on for, the more that's... Because some of the criticisms that I've seen about our documentary, our podcast online, has been you are trying to destroy my financial well-being. And I think... What, what have I got to do? You know, I'm just reporting. What have I got to do with it? But the idea is that you as the haters, you as the disbelievers, and they call us haters, you are trying to destroy one coin, and when you destroy one coin, you'll destroy my financial future. I was also struck that in the inner circles of the organisation, there's a demand for absolute loyalty. Access to the leader, now disappeared, was very, very strictly controlled. People fall in and out of favour. And I was reminded of, and of course one always has to be very careful when you mention this subject, but I, I was reminded of the way that Scientology operates. Mm. The way people are reprimanded and punished and encouraged and basically very, very tightly controlled the closer you get to the centre of the organisation. Yeah, there's definitely some, some truth in that. And um, one of the whistleblowers we mentioned said that, you know, access in the head office in Sofia, Bulgaria... You'd be made sometimes to wait outside for hours at a time if you were out of favour. Maybe if you hadn't sold enough of the co- whatever the reason would be, I don't know. But yeah, there was definitely a sense of the, the leader was very well protected. She she walked around with bodyguards. Access to her was, was carefully controlled, certainly. Have religious believers, churches or religious organisations, been victims or targets of this scam? Yes. I can't say too much about that. Yet, because some of that's going to come out later. But one thing that we have seen is that within the British Muslim community, it has spread very quickly. I think it's really sort of disproportionately targeted British Muslims. It's hard to know whether it's targeted them or it's just naturally spread among them. And one of the things that they did was to create a Sharia compliant document because there's some quite strict rules for Muslims, especially um, quite devout Muslims about investment and interest and those kinds of things so they had a they had a document that they said would showed was sharia compliant and well i spoke to a mufti who looked at that and said that was that's wrong it's not correct it's not sharia compliant and he suspects that they may have just created that to try to encourage it to spread further the thing about these sorts of movements is that because it's a sort of network selling model you sell them to your friends and families it's the tighter the community and the more trust there is within it, the faster it spreads because you're going to trust your friends. A lot of people are bringing people into this, not out of malice, but because they want to share this amazing opportunity. Well, let's look at some of the similarities between the way global religious networks operate and this scam has operated and many other scams have operated. 
they can be on an enormous scale and yet fall under the radar. Yeah. I mean, I find it remarkable yeah. that this organization, which what, had, had big offices in Hong Kong, has got meetings in Uganda, everywhere you've spoken to, you know, uh, Scottish yeah. women who've yeah. impoverished themselves through investing in it. This global network exists and goes uninvestigated because I suspect there's so much going on. There's so much yeah. traffic in ideas and movements on the web and something can arise like this and go unexamined. And I think that has been true of rad- radical religious networks. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. That's one of the things that has amazed me and I think amazed a lot of people who have listened. They say, well, have, why have I not heard about this? How have I not seen this already in the news? And I had the same feeling myself. I mean, the number of people that were involved and the, and the number of countries that were involved. But I think maybe the fact it spread so widely is one of the reasons... It hasn't been picked up much because it sort of spread a little bit everywhere. So in no one country is it absolutely enormous except for China, but it's relatively big in a lot of places. But it's one of lots of different cryptocurrencies, one of lots of different networks, marketing opportunities. And because it's sort of based everywhere and nowhere, no one's really taken the lead, got hold of it and really investigated it thoroughly. And it's tapping into a very powerful ethos in the 21st century, which is that Old established institutions such as the banks, parliaments, the rule of law even, have become irrelevant. The only people who matter, and Mm. this is very obvious in the sort of smugness of people in Silicon Valley, are tech entrepreneurs Mm. whose visions bypass and supersede anything that ordinary boring institutions can come up with. Yeah, certainly in the way that OneCoin has marketed itself, there's a lot of language about you know, people are unbanked. The traditional banks have let you down. They've messed things up for you. You can't really trust them anymore. This is the new thing. This is different. This is technology that you can trust. And I think they have definitely tried to tap into that broader sentiment of anti-establishment. You don't trust the big institutions. And to some extent with the BBC as well. This podcast comes out and the first thing they do is to say it's fake news, you know, all their supporters at least, this is fake news, it's propaganda, you can't trust it. One of the things that they've always said about the critics of OneCoin, because there have been plenty of critics out there banging the drum about this, mostly ignored, is to say that they're paid haters, they're people that are being paid to undermine it, or they're people that have invested in Bitcoin and they're scared that OneCoin will overtake Bitcoin, i.e. you can't really trust other people to have decent motives they're being moved by a personal financial gain or whatever and that's the same of the big institutions that are trying to do us down it seems to me like it draws on so many different aspects of things that are going on today well you try attacking the church of scientology and see what happens in terms of the massive response has it changed now though after all i think it's uh, begun to change i think I, i think scientology have basically I think it's jumped the shark as a movement. But certainly until a few years ago, any criticism of Scientology would bring massive Mm. threats of lawsuits Mm. and tactics of intimidation and on an almost hysterical scale. Mm. And there would be a very, very specific targeting of anybody who criticised the movement. And, well, you've been targeted Mm. yourself, haven't you? Well, um, I wouldn't say I've been directly... No-one's threatened me or anything like this, uh, so... Don't want to accuse them of, of that, but vid- videos saying that I am, can't be trusted, that I'm not a real journalist, that, you know, that I'm biased in this way or that. A few nasty comments online as well, but that's pretty, I mean, that's 
I take that as standard now, to be honest. I mean, yeah. That kind of thing, that kind of thing. I mean, that's again a reflection of broader society. The the, the big thing in, in in society as a whole at the moment, I think, is criticism increasingly seems to be questioning your motives and your integrity. Well, you don't really believe you're lying, or you don't really believe that you're motivated by this thing or that thing. So this is what we see, I think, in politics today, isn't it? Well, I think that's because this is my pet theory. There's been a massive worldwide shift towards charisma as institutions fail there's more and more concentration on special qualities of charismatic individuals mm. in the case of dr rougeau the almost the almost quasi quasi magical yeah. powers yeah and we expect quasi magical achievements from our politicians mm. and when they disappoint us we lose faith very quickly rather mm. as religious believers lose faith if you think about um, Marshall McLuhan's writing on electronic media, as he sort of called it in the 1960s, he said, we're returning, television means the end of the, of the written, I mean, the written word, and literate man will turn into oral man, but it'll all be about visuals, and it'll be about hearing, it's a different type of medium, and that type of medium is essentially much more tribal in its essence. It's not thoughtful, slow form, careful, meticulous, it's join a tribe, be part of a tribe, and you're in one side and I'm in the other side. And what do you I mean, you need a tribal leader. Well, I mean, if, if the media drives you towards this tribalism, you need a leader in your tribe who can then stand above it all and you can look to and worship. And that's been my view about how digital technology is doing the same thing and, and forcing us to build up these tribal leaders that we have to take, you know, and then we follow them to the death. Um, well, we follow them until we kill them. I mean, well, we look, take yeah. a look, take a look at YouTube, take a look at the massive, passionate followings that are amassed by people the rest of the world hasn't heard of on YouTube, hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of followers on YouTube. Mm. And then within 18 months, it's mm. all over. Mm. It happens again and again and again. Mm. The structure of the internet doesn't allow for the building up of a sort of slow, thoughtful theology. No. And what I'm wondering is, whether the next great religious movement, if there is one, and it's quite possible that the world is now too fragmented to allow space for such a thing, might look a bit like one coin in some respects. It will appear to come out of nowhere. People will not notice its impact until it's too late. And a lot of damage has been done, because I suspect the next great religious movement, whatever its beliefs, will be doing damage. But it will have a chaotic, frenetic overexcited and ungovernable feel to it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good idea, a really good thought. And, and if you can combine the sort of tribalism, the sort of tribal leader, the charismatic front person with this supposedly life-changing, world-changing technology, and you can put your faith in both of those things simultaneously, that is a possibility. One of the things about OneCoin and the way that they marketed it was the founder of Bitcoin, this mysterious man, well, man, woman, who knows, maybe a group of people called Satoshi Nakamoto. He, you've come across him. I've that, certainly heard yeah. of him. Haven't yeah. met the guy. Well, you might have <laughs> done and not known it. Um, and, and he designed Bitcoin, released it out into the world, and then he or she, I wouldn't say vanished because they never really appeared in the first place. No one knows who that person is. And one of the selling points of OneCoin was to say, Unlike Bitcoin, with this mysterious disappeared founder, we have a charismatic leader that you can see. That's why we're better than Bitcoin. 
You've mentioned the word tribe, which certainly makes sense to me. These things have a tribal feel to them, but it's not tribes as in ancient ancestral loyalties. It's more like a modern-day version of, I don't know, mods and rockers or the sort of street tribes to which people don't belong for very long. When I was studying this big evangelical church, what really struck me was how very, very fast the turnover of membership was. These high-intensity movements are a tribe, but the membership of the tribe is always shifting as people are being attracted and pulled away by different attractions, and these days different attractions online. I mean, do you find that people, part of their digital experience, belong to a number of tribes, either simultaneously or consecutively? Yeah, that's a good question. You you do get some people that, they get sucked into a tribe. Let's take the weirdest tribes that I've seen, like pro-anorexia or pro-suicide forum tribes, like these groups... A lot of people that analyse don't understand the speed with which people join these groups and become fully invested is staggering. And it's the same with the radical right, the neo-Nazi forums. The old assumption was that people would join radical movements very slowly and gradually and it would take them years of indoctrination. Absolutely wrong. I'd say the people that are the most dangerous are the ones that join and within six months or six weeks even, they are fully, fully signed up. There's the, the zeal of the convert, absolutely 100% in. And... It's this, and, and this it seems to be related to how people consume information on the internet. You don't have time to develop a slow, thoughtful relationship with a set of ideas or an ideology. Online, you just kind of fully blast straight away, all in immediately. And it might be the speed with which it comes at you, the, the sort of the community that it can create, because you, you join these groups, and this is true of almost every online group I've seen, I think I assumed that people would join online groups like a pro-anorexia forum and you wouldn't feel connected really to the people because they're faceless people on the other side of the world potentially and you just interact with them through the screen. But the people I've interviewed have felt so fully emotionally engaged in the communities online that they've become part of. They spend their entire nights up at night till four or five in the morning chatting to these in these small forums and building up a really, really intense relationship with each other. It's replacing something, isn't it? I wonder, yeah. I know the sort of the cliche is it replaces organised religion and, you know... But it's also, I think, replacing communities. I mean, you know, some of the people you've interviewed are from effectively collapsing communities, communities that are threatened by poverty and geographical dislocation. And so people plunge into this new world of endless promise. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right, yeah. And some of it's very, very poignant. I mean, tell us about the, the Scottish woman that you yeah. interview. I can't remember if you give yeah. her a name, but... Yeah, Jen. She, she Jen. was very, very angry when she was first confronted by evidence that the thing was a scam. Can yeah. you just, just run through quickly, because yeah. I thought that was very poignant. Yeah, yeah, well, the stuff I was talking about before was not necessarily about one point, more broadly about how online communities are formed, but there are definitely some similarities, and... We were amazing with Jen. This is a Scottish woman. She invested 10,000 euros of her own money. And it was another good example of how she invests 500 euros just to kind of get going. That's 500 euros into one coin, sort of dip her toe in the water. One week later, she invests another, I think, another 5,000. And I said, only one week? She said, yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, straight away. This was money that she'd inherited from her dad. And she believed so quickly so much that she was willing to put so much money into it's it so like, soon. It's almost like selling your possessions and giving yeah. it up for Christ yeah. or something. You know, there's just hints of this yeah. total commitment that's required, total yeah. and immediate commitment that's yeah. required. I've seen it in so many cults and sects and new religious movements. Yeah, it's, in, it's a fascinating phenomenon and it does transcend any one particular movement, doesn't it? And what was so unique about the 
pretty twinkle in her. There's this guy who was a critic of one coin called Tim Curry, and he sort of goes around online trying to talk people out, and they never listen to him. They always just say he's a hater and so on. But he managed to get to Jen, and they and and she agreed to talk to him. And I wonder whether she just there was enough doubt in her mind that she let him talk to him. So they recorded. She recorded their conversation over Skype. This useful thing about this group, they record a lot of their conversations, and she kept it. And she blew her top. Oh, she was furious with him when he was trying to say to her. Listen, this is a scam. You're going to lose your money. I mean, she was so angry. She did not see him as someone trying to help. And even if even if she thinks he's wrong, that doesn't really explain the level of anger because she could just say, well, I, I think you're wrong. I mean, you know, and I'm happy. But she was furious that he was trying to talk her out of it. Which is weird in a way, isn't it? Because if someone tried to talk me out of Bitcoin that I had, I wouldn't be angry with them for doing that. I'd just say, well, I think we did we part company on this, sorry. I think you get a lot of anger if you confronted members of certain cults with evidence, for example, that their cult leader, as so often happens, is sexually or financially compromised. Mm. The more the stronger and more shocking the evidence, the angrier their response is likely to be. Yeah, and um, it was amazing to get the coverage of that argument, to see it from both sides, to see how she reacted, and then we played back the footage to her Again, because now she's kind of switched sides. She's gone from being a complete believer to being the biggest sceptic on the planet, which is another thing I think you see relatively often. Once you switch, you switch fully. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, was, um, I was on the governing body of Inform, this um, government-funded cult watching group, which is absolutely excellent and rigorous in, in its approach. Well, they were saying new religious movements. We had they? to do... Well, <laughs> we do well, it, it, exactly, but there is, there's, a, there's, there's a place for the word cult, as long as you use it relatively mm. carefully. Mm. But one of the problems we had to deal with was the anti-cult movement, mm. which had distinctly cult-like no. tendencies. You know, if you questioned their model of the cult, they went bananas, because as far mm. as they were concerned, there was one type of cult, there was mind control, brainwashing, all the rest of it, question that, and they lose it completely. There's certainly, um, among the people that are now critics, there's a real sense of community as well. You know, I'm never going to say it's the same as with one coin, but there's definitely a sense of community among them, the critics, who've now sort of seen the light, if you like, and are out there arguing against it. And what I found especially interesting, playing the footage of Jen when she was a believer, back to Jen, now she's a sceptic, she said something that really struck me, which was, um, it feels like it's a different person. I can't believe that's me who's arguing that. It doesn't feel like me. I'm just wondering, finally, Jamie, you've been taking an interest in the fringes of digital culture, mm. which are now almost unmappable for a long time. This thing will burn itself out, partly thanks to you. But what will replace it? Or what activity do you sense out there? What do you, well, what do you, what do you think will be the next tribes oh, to manifest oh themselves? That's such a difficult question. And it won't be thanks to me that this burn. There's a lot of people out there that have been trying to raise awareness about this for a long time. And so many people have just ignored them, funnily enough. So it's really their, their work rather than mine. But I, I think what you said earlier, I've been thinking about it myself for a while the, the idea that the new quasi-religious movements that are based around some belief in technology is almost inevitable i mean if you think about the way we talk and think about artificial intelligence already and this smarter being than us i mean what do you if you I mean, if you can imagine some creation that has computing power millions of times stronger than us can solve problems better than we can can understand certain trends better than we can we'll, we will begin to defer to that and it seems inevitable, that, and, and especially the more 
algorithms have control over our daily lives in ways that we don't really understand. I remember when I was a young child and I'd say, to, and I was raised as a Catholic as well, and I went to Catholic school my whole life and I went to church and I was an altar boy and everything, the whole lot. And I always used to say to my mum, um, what's God like, you know, what's God really like, you know, what's he like? And she'd always say, oh, you know, it's, it's unknowable, Jamie, it's beyond your comprehension. And he, and he gets involved in your daily life in ways you can never understand. And I'm thinking about that, I was like, well, that's the same as artificial intelligence, isn't it? I can't understand how it works. And yet some coffee's just turned up thanks to some algorithm I don't understand. And maybe it wouldn't have turned up, maybe it would have been... We just ordered a delivery, I should yeah, explain. Well, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Our love life is determined by algorithms we don't understand. Our reading choices, the movies we watch, and, and it's going to be more and more and more and more. So if you think about some powerful, incomprehensible thing that controls our lives and intervenes in it in ways beyond our comprehension... Well, it's not that well, different from... Artificial intelligence is a huge topic, and let's, by all means, do an episode on it at some point. But let me quickly say this. Aren't there already vicious sectarian disputes between experts on the subject of artificial intelligence? They're already fighting over how, what it how means, how you should it interpret it, how dangerous yes, it is. Yes. There are already camps forming. Yes. There's lots of different camps in Silicon Valley. Some are more yes. utopian than others. Yes. They all seem to be fighting to market their own vision of the future. Yes. In fact, you can't open a coffee shop in Silicon Valley without a vision of the future. Or anywhere, actually. I mean, just read what yeah. you know, any chain says That's about true. what it says about how you know, world-changing its yeah. oat milk lattes are. I agree with you entirely, but I just mean that I think it's going to be on that subject that we'll see the next big movements, the next big quasi-spiritual movements that were very fringe 10 years ago and you can already like you say you already see them entering into coffee shops and the next wave will be a sort of religious devotion to them that's what i think well when it happens jamie bartlett will talk about it can i say one thing i've got to probably say that one coin of course disputes our allegations in the podcast well let's they do. just they dispute the state that absolutely yeah, clearly they dispute those allegations and they say they are a real cryptocurrency and that they are going to be opening an exchange and that our work is biased and without going into all the detail all i can say is throughout the podcast we address their responses to us so it's a kind of evolving story yeah you think that's going to protect you jamie <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit nerve-wracking doing all this but you know at some point you've feel like you land on a story that's so um, incredible you've just got to go all in on it. Jamie Bartlett, thank you very much and I strongly recommend The Missing Crypto Queen, his podcast series which you can find on the BBC website and meanwhile don't forget to subscribe to Holy Smoke.